Once again, it's very good to be with you. Please turn with me in God's holy word to the Gospel of John. Uh, our, in the bulletin, it says the text is um, 3 through 8. It's actually 4 through 8, but I'd like to begin reading a bit before that. I'd like to start reading at the very end of chapter 2. So please turn with me in God's holy word to John chapter 2, verses, verse 23, beginning there. We will read through chapter 3, verse 8. Let us hear God's word. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man, the Pharisee, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word. We, we rejoice in it, Father. Because it is life to us. It is salvation to us. It is light to us in the midst of the darkness of this world. Therefore, Father, we pray that your Spirit, which inspired this, your word, would apply it to our hearts and minds building us up in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As I was, when I was very young, I can remember my mother often quoting poetry. She grew up in a day when a lot of poetry was memorized in school, and she learned poetry not only in English verse, but also in Latin as well. Now, the Latin just absolutely meant nothing to any of the rest of us. Uh, all I can remember is Mika Mika Conestella, which apparently is Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. That's, that's the maximum of my, my memory. But I do remember a number of the other poems that she would recite. And she would quote them, especially uh, at times when she thought circumstances or the weather warranted it. So, for instance, on a very windy day, she would always quote the Victorian poem by Christina Rossetti, Who Has Seen the Wind? Who has seen the wind, neither I nor you. But when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. Who has seen the wind, neither you nor I. But when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. Now she always would quote a third stanza that is not part of the original poem. As a matter of fact, 
I have spent too much time on the internet trying to find it, and I cannot, I cannot figure out where she got this. But she always added a third stanza that, I must admit, went something like this. Who has seen God? Neither you nor I. But when heads are bowed in prayer, we know his spirit is passing by. The meter of the added verse or stanza doesn't match the original poem, but I can't, and, and I said I can't find out where she learned it, but the point is as clear as the original verses. There are things we can't see, but we know that they are present because of the effect that they have. We know that the wind is blowing because of its soft touch on our cheek or because we see the grass or the trees moving. And likewise, we know that the Spirit is present because of transformed lives or because of the fruit that we see that has been produced by the Spirit in those lives. No, we can't see love. We cannot see peace and we cannot see faith. But we know that love is present when we, hear, when we feel a gentle touch. We know that peace is present when we hear a kind word. And we know faith is present when someone takes a stand on something that's going to cost them for that stand. While we may use understanding and our five senses to evaluate the results of the work of the Spirit, the Spirit and its fruit isn't something subject to our examination. That doesn't mean that, they, that the Spirit's not real. It doesn't mean that the fruit of the Spirit aren't there. What it does mean is that there is a degree of mystery. Because we're trying to use things of this earth in order to understand the things of God in heaven. In our emphasis on the importance of understanding, I think sometimes we lose sight of that mystery. The work of the Spirit is a mystery. The Spirit works when and how the will of God pleases. As Jesus makes very clear. In John 3, 4 through 8, the passage before us this morning. In these verses, I would like us to see an earthly understanding and a spiritual birth. These verses are found within the context of the interaction that takes place between Jesus and a religious leader, a member presumably of the Sanhedrin, the highest religious body of its day, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Many of us have read this section of the Gospel of John or heard it preached and we've heard its message about being born again. And sometimes we've mistakenly concluded that this is the passage where Nicodemus hears the Gospel and becomes a believer. I say mistakenly because while Nicodemus may become a believer later on, and we think he probably did because of the stand he takes with Joseph of Arimathea with regard to taking care of Jesus body after the crucifixion. But in this passage, it is very clear that this man is not a believer. He is not a disciple in this passage. He is a kind of a believer. He is described as having faith. But his faith is not the same sort of faith that a disciple has. 
And that is what has left us, I think, a bit confused at times. Too often we read the word believe or we hear the word believe and think that all such faith is referring to the same thing when it comes to talking about Jesus. So let's look at what's happening in this passage. In the second half of John chapter 1, because remember, all this passage falls in the flow of the gospel message as a whole. And so what do we find? Beginning, after the introduction to this gospel, this verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, we come to verse 19, and we begin reading about John the Baptist. Right? Who, is, by the way, is never called the Baptist in the gospel of John. He's always called John. Of course, the gospel writer never refers to himself by his own name either. So the only John in this gospel is the one that we call the Baptist. But beginning in the second half of chapter 1, we find the confessions of faith of John the Baptist and the first of Jesus' disciples. For instance, these are confessions that are made about Jesus. And I want us to think about this. These are confessions made about Jesus before the beginning of his public ministry. His public ministry doesn't start until chapter 2 with the first of his signs, the turning of water into wine. But already in the second half of chapter 1, we find John the Baptist declaring that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 29. We find Jesus being called the Son of God. In verses 34 and 49. We call Jesus being called the Christ by his disciples. In verse 41. And he is called the King of Israel, referring to the eternal King. In verse 49. In other words, Jesus is declared by these believers to be the divine Son of God, the Messiah, and the eternal King who will sit on David's throne forever. Everything that the true church is going to say about Jesus is declared about Jesus by John and the disciples before the beginning of his public ministry. And that's what the gospel writer wants us to know. We believed in this even before he started. Okay? And so that's what's coming out in that passage. Everything that the true church is going to confess is believed about him by these men in the week before his public ministry starts. And what did Jesus promise to those who believed? In his first truly, truly of John chapter 1, verse 51, he prompt, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The faith of those disciples was reinforced in the opening passage of chapter 2. When they saw the water, the miracle of the water turned into wine. Verse 11 says, they saw his glory and believed. Their faith was further reinforced in the next passage of chapter 2. When Jesus went in and cleansed the temple in a zeal for the holiness of the temple, the disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, and they saw Jesus' actions as a fulfillment of the scriptures in verse 17. And when they later understood his words to those who challenged his authority, 
We're told in verse 22 that they believed the scriptures and Jesus' words, which for us is the Old and New Testaments. However, while those passages show us the difference between those who believed on the one hand, like John and the disciples, and those who challenged the authority, first of John the Baptist, and then of Jesus on the other, those passages also raise some questions in our minds about faith. While the disciples' faith seemed to increase as it was reinforced by Jesus' actions, there were others who saw the same thing who heard the same thing and were either told nothing about them believing or were, frankly, told that they didn't believe enough. For example, in verse 9 of chapter 2, we are told explicitly that the servants who carried the water to the water jars knew where the wine came from. But we are never that they believed. Furthermore, in the, be- in the next verses of chapter 2, in Jesus' zeal for the temple, what the disciples saw as a fulfillment of the scriptures, verse 17. In other words, they saw it as a sign that Jesus was fulfilling the scriptures. We're told explicitly that those who were challenging Jesus' authority did not see it as a sign. Because in verse 18, they're saying, show us a sign. In other words, what was a miracle for one group and caused them to believe doesn't seem to produce any faith in the other group. What was clearly seen as a sign for one group is not seen as a sign by another group. With chapter 2, verse 23, things get through 3 3, things get more complicated, but they also become a little clearer. John introduces another th- category. In fact, every commentary calls it a third category. On the one hand, they aren't opposed to Jesus, and we are told that they believe that Jesus is sent by God. But on the other hand, Jesus doesn't trust them, he doesn't entrust himself to them, he doesn't give himself to them in the way that he gives himself to the disciples. Look at 2.23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Look at 3.2. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this group is clearly described as believing. Okay? On the other hand, they are a group whom Jesus doesn't trust. Look at 2.24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. The fact that Nicodemus is in this category is proven in two ways. First, I want you to look at your Bible again, if you have it open, and I want you to see those English words that have been inserted there. They're all in caps between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And I want you to know that is in no Greek manuscript. That is inserted by English editors. Whether it says something about being born again or something else, that heading isn't in the Bible. It is no part of the text. 
Second of all, I want you to forget about the chapter marks and I want you to forget about the verse marks because though those are going to be added far later. I want you to look at the end of verse 24, R24, and read right into the beginning of verse 1. And here's how it sounds. Needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man. Anthropos, anthropos, anthropos. It's a form of anthropos. In other words, it's all the same word. So textually speaking, we are to understand Nicodemus is an example of the kind of man that is described in the last verses of chapter 2. They believed in his name because of the signs, but Jesus doesn't trust them. The second way in which we know that Nicodemus was in this category is because of the way he himself speaks to Jesus. While the disciples confessed Jesus to be the Son of God, the Christ, and the Eternal King. And remember, John the Baptist goes so far as to say, I am unworthy to tie or untie his sandals. In other words, everybody else is acknowledging, disciples and John are acknowledging that he is far and above beyond them. How does Nicodemus address him? Simply as rabbi. What is Nicodemus? A rabbi. So he is addressing Jesus as his equal. Yes, he believes in a supernatural God. Yes, he does believe that Jesus is on a supernatural mission because he believes that he has been sent by God because otherwise he wouldn't be able to do the things that he is able to do. But this is not the same kind of address that we find from the disciples. It is not the same kind of address that we even find from John the Baptist. He doesn't believe that Jesus is in that sense, as others did, superior to himself. This category of men isn't opposed to Jesus and can even be said to believe in Jesus' name. But the faith of this sort of man is not the same sort of faith that the disciples have. While those who have the sort of faith concerning Jesus that the disciples have are promised in the first truly, truly that they will see the heavens opened and therefore they will see the glory of the Son of Man. This second group in the second truly, truly of John 3.3 is told that unless they are born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. So you see the contrast between these two truly truths? One is going to see the glory of the Son of Man, and the other is not going to see the kingdom of God. The translation born again is possible. And this is going to explain why Nicodemus has such a great misunderstanding. That that translation is possible, but it takes really away the emphasis that Jesus is trying to make and emphasizes more what Nicodemus understood in his own mind. While Nicodemus is taking Jesus' words to refer to a physical rebirth, As we see in verse 4, can a man go a second time into his mother's womb? Jesus' response in verses 5 through 8 makes it very clear that he is speaking about 
something that is not physical, that is something of the spirit. You see, here's the thing. In English, we have two different words to describe what gets translated as begotten and give birth. Okay, there's two different words. A, a father begets, a woman gives birth. Therefore, in Psalm 2-7, we read, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We have two different words for it in English. In both Hebrew and Greek, there was only one word to describe both of those two things. Nicodemus is taking the word to mean born. And that is why he thinks about having to go back into his mother and how can that possibly happen. Jesus, on the other hand, is talking about something that God does. The word again can be translated as either from above or again. If we understand these, this passage in light of John 1.13, then it's clear that Jesus is emphasizing that which is a work of God, that which comes from above. God must give new life to a person or they will not see the kingdom of God. They will not see the kingdom of God because they do not recognize that Jesus is its king. They may recognize the signs of the kingdom, but they will not see the kingdom itself unless they recognize its king. Nicodemus and those like him think that Jesus is only a messenger on the way to the kingdom. Something like a prophet. Something like a great teacher. That's true. But they don't realize that what is the one who is standing before them is the very, he's the very kingdom itself. Because he is the king of the kingdom, manifested in his own person. They don't understand that he is the reality. And that brings us to these verses. Here Jesus emphasizes to men like Nicodemus that they must be born of, the wa born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. An earthly understanding. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus addressed to Jesus in 3.2 sounds very respectful. And it is respectful. He, he considers him a rabbi. I mean, he considers him to be somebody who is sent from God. He affirms that he and others like him recognize that Jesus signs from Jesus' signs that God has sent him. And truly, it even sounds encouraging. And face it, if, if we had a friend who was saying this, we'd be saying, Pastor, a Bible study, Pastor, you wouldn't believe that person we've been praying for. You, you'd be amazed. Here's what they said this week. In fact, we'd probably in our own minds think that they'd already become a Christian if they got this far. And that's because too often we hear such encouraging things. And we put, put it in contrast to the unbelief of the world or to the apathy of other people. And we think, wow, they're there. Or they're at least almost there. And you see, the first century church was faced with this all the time. With people who thought Jesus was a great prophet. The people who thought that Jesus was a great teacher. There are people today, obviously, who say he's a great teacher. He has great words to say. They might even think he's sent from God. But it's not the faith of a disciple that they have.
And that's how many people have taken Nicodemus' words. They've been so encouraged by them. They think, okay, he has a lot to learn. There's a lot of people who don't know what it means to be born again. But I hope that you see that Nicodemus' problem isn't an understanding problem. It's not a, it's not a, a thought problem. Nicodemus' problem is a faith problem. He has faith. He believes in a supernatural God who reveals himself. He believes that God has sent Jesus and that God is with Jesus. However, unlike the disciples who have confessed that Jesus is God, <coughs> Nicodemus only believes that, like himself, Jesus is a teacher, a rabbi. Therefore, we should see that this understanding problem that we're about to look at at root is a believing problem. Nicodemus is completely bewildered by Jesus' words that one must be born again. His bewilderment leads him to ask, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he go back into his mother's womb? Now, it should amaze us that in his lack of understanding, even in his lack of understanding, Nicodemus doesn't just walk away. Jesus' words are so different from anything that he's ever considered before that he can't, he, he can't do anything other than connect what Jesus is saying to physical rebirth. It should also amaze us to realize that a person can be said to believe that Jesus is a teacher from God, and number two, know so much about the revelation of God in the Old Testament Scriptures that he is, has a seat on the Sanhedrin and is a Pharisee and still be baffled by Jesus' words. No, the Old Testament doesn't use the words begotten from above. It doesn't use the words born again or anything like that. But God's word did speak about God giving a new heart, a new life. You heard it this morning. It was in the call to worship when the pastor read Ezekiel 36. It was in the earlier scripture reading about the dead bones being given new life and raised from the dead, from their graves in Ezekiel 37. But it goes back even further than that. After 400 years in Egypt, on the eve of the 10th plague, God said to Israel in Exodus 12, too, This month shall be for you the beginning of months, the first month of the year for you. They were no longer to measure time in terms of Abraham, in terms of Isaac, in terms of Jacob, in terms of the 12 patriarchs. They were the start of something new. And they should have understood this is rebirth. And therefore, in Exodus 12, 22 through 23, when they were told to take hyssop with blood on it, dip it in the blood of the lamb that they had slaughtered for the Passover, and put it on the lintels of the door to protect everyone in the house from the tenth plague and the death of the firstborn son and the firstborn of each of their animals. They should have understood that as that destroyer passed over the land of Egypt, striking down the firstborn of the Egyptians, that as they emerged from their homes that had been sealed up for the night and entered into the morning of the next day after the angel of death had passed by and they found themselves alive, they should have realized that it was a new birth. 
They were a people that had been spared, like Noah's family emerging from the ark. Here were people who should be dead, but they have been spared by the grace of God to emerge into the light of day. And if that imagery was too quickly lost in their understanding, then passages in the law that portray the forgiveness of sins through sacrifices, like the slaughtering of the animal in Leviticus 1, that it dies on the altar in your place. How could they not see that? And couldn't they see it in the prophets, as I've already said in Ezekiel, in the taking away your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh? Putting my spirit within you, making you obey my laws. For those who recognized their own sinfulness and the penalty of their sin, it was all there. It was in the cry of the psalmist in passages like Psalm 85, 6 through 7. Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O God, and grant us your salvation. The wages of sin and the just punishment delivered for those sins was very clear. And while the exact words of born again and begotten from above aren't in the Old Testament scriptures, the understanding of life after what should have been the execution of a death penalty should not have been a far reach for Nicodemus. But Nicodemus hasn't even come close to that. Not even close. His thinking goes to the purely physical. His thinking is entirely earthy. Therefore, Jesus makes it clear that he is not speaking about something physical. A spiritual birth, verses 5-8. through Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Not only must a person be born again to see the kingdom of God, that person must be born of water and the Spirit or they will not enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus isn't going to be the only one, by the way, who fails to understand these words of Jesus. People have variously thought that water refers either to physical birth which would just be the same thing that Nicodemus thought he was talking about. Or they have thought that it's a, a metaphor for physical birth, like he's, Jesus is saying you have to be born of the Spirit twice. But in probably the worst twist, and because this is Reformation Sunday, I'm going to tell you about this. The Roman Church declared that Jesus is referring to Christian baptism, the sacrament of baptism in verse 5. In fact, based on this passage, they taught that their sacrament is essential to salvation. And that turned this passage into a battleground during the Reformation. The Roman church insisted that the sacrament of the church was essential for salvation. Roman Catholic theologian, and you know, I would never quote from a Roman Catholic theologian, but how often do you have a Roman Catholic theologian who mentions Calvin? So I had to do this. Roman Catholic theologian Raymond Brown writes this in his commentary on John 3, 5. Quote, 
An added complication has entered the discussion from the use of this text in Protestant-Catholic disputes about the necessity for salvation of baptism by water. For example, Calvin maintained that real water was not necessarily involved, but that water indicates the purifying work of the Spirit. This view, attacked by the Anglican Westcott in his commentary, was condemned by Session 7 of the Council of Trent. End quote. Do you realize that the same council that condemned justification by faith alone condemned Calvin's interpretation of John 3, 5? Well, if Jesus isn't making a reference to the yet future sacrament of baptism, a sacrament that is not going to be introduced until Jesus' resurrection in Matthew 28, what is Jesus referring to here? Sometimes we say, you've probably heard this, we refer to a sacrament as an outward sign of an inward seal. Some of you have heard that before. I see some nods. For those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, God promises that he will wash away our sins on account of Jesus' work. Of course, the cleansing to which the sacrament of baptism points was also pointed to by many elements of Old Testament worship. And you see, that is, by the way, that's what Calvin's point is, is that Jesus isn't talking about the sacrament, he's talking about the reality of which the sacrament is a sign. But in the Old Testament, this was already shown to be there. There was the washing. Did you know that before the Israelites heard the voice of God in Exodus chapter 20 as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, do you know that they were told to consecrate themselves for three days? And part of that consecration in Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 through 11, consisted of them washing their clothes. So before you meet God, they were to wash their clothes. Then, think about what happens before, what happens in front of the tabernacle and then later the temple. There was a bronze laver. You remember that? That big bronze laver? And before the priests could enter into the tabernacle, they were to what? Bathe. They were to wash themselves. And then there was the, there was a ceremonial, the ritual cleansing that took place at the end of a ceremonial uncleanness. You see, ceremonial uncleanness, like you touched a dead animal by accident or maybe on purpose because you had to get it out of your food, a rat dies in your, in your grain, guess what? You gotta remove the rat. That's gonna make you ceremonially unclean. You're unclean till evening. And what do you have to do? You have to bathe. Before you could enter into the presence of God or into the worshiping assembly of God's people, there had to be a ritual washing. And that ritual washing pointed to the reality that would be secured by Jesus on the cross when God, by His grace, washes us and cleanses us from our sins. And therefore... Born of water refers to the cleansing from sin that has to take place. Born of the Spirit speaks about the new life that we must have from the Spirit. And we must have this forgiveness, this washing, and this new life. Or we cannot enter the kingdom of God. The fundamental difference between the faith 
of these people represented by Nicodemus and the faith of the disciples is rooted in part in what they think about Jesus, but it's also rooted in part by what they think of themselves. They did not understand their need for Jesus. They did not understand that he, that they need to believe in him, that he is their God. That he is their Savior to wash away their sins. That he is their King to rule however he pleases. They did not recognize their need for him and therefore they did not recognize who he was. And because of that, there was not only a difference between what they thought of him and what the disciples thought of him, there was also a difference between what he thought of them and what he thought of the disciples. Because he did not entrust himself to them. They did not have saving faith because they were not begotten from above. They did not have saving faith because they had not been washed clean of their sin and been given the new life of the Spirit. The disciples had a saving faith. Nicodemus and those like him did not. While his words seemed encouraging, Nicodemus and those like him had more in common with the unbelief of those who attacked Jesus than they had in common with a disciple. No one will believe unless they are raised from the dead and given new life in Christ by the work of the Spirit. But neither will they be able to believe unless they know what they're supposed to believe about Jesus and His work for our salvation. You need to talk to others about Jesus. You need to tell them who Jesus is and you need to explain what God has done for lost mankind through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. You need to make clear the demands of God and the promises of the gospel. But in the end, it will only be by the work of the Spirit that your family your neighbor, your friend, and your co-worker will be raised from the dead and washed clean of their sins. It will only be by the work of the Spirit that they will be given the gift of saving faith. It will only be by the work of the Spirit who works when and however God pleases that they will be begotten from above and be able to see and enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, you and I need to be far, far more serious to pray, to pray, to pray. You must pray that the Spirit will do in them what He did in you. You must pray that the Lord will open their eyes and unstop their ears. You must pray that God we will raise them from the dead. Yes. You must tell them the word. You must tell them what God has done. You must tell them who Jesus is. But you need to pray. Or they will hear the words. But they will not understand. They will see your life but not perceive what Christ is, who Christ is and what he has done. 
you must pray that they will see and believe that Jesus is their God, that Jesus is their Savior, that Jesus is their King. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Him who is our God, our Savior, and our King. We thank you, Father, because we know it is by your grace that you raised us from the dead. It is by your grace that you have given us the gift of faith. It is by your grace that you have given us new hearts. It is by your grace that you have caused us to embrace Jesus as he has embraced Father, we thank you for Jesus. We praise you for Jesus. And we pray, Father, that by your grace that you would use us, particularly in these next months. We know that we're going to see a lot of families. Some family that we only see maybe once a year. Maybe some family we haven't seen in two years because of COVID. We pray, Father, that you would give us boldness at those moments when we have the opportunity to speak about the grace of God that has been fully manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would give us courage to speak about the hope of the gospel and the salvation and forgiveness that are only found in Christ. But most of all, Father, most of all, Pray that you would raise them from the dead. That you would cause them to see. That you would cause them to hear. That you would give them understanding. That you would take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Pray, Father, that they would believe. That they would believe that Jesus has died for their sins. That they would believe that Jesus is their God and their King. Even if they forget us, Father, that's what we pray would happen. That they would believe. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on those whom we love and that we desire and hope that we become Christians. We pray, Father, that you would have mercy on co-workers and on neighbors, friends who do not know you. We pray that you would give them new life and faith by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.